Heavenly Father, we sing for your glory. We want to give you all praise and honor. Lord, as we continue our worship of you through the preaching of the word of God, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and visit us, to move in our midst, to awaken our souls to you, and to do your work of convicting us of our sin, righteousness, and judgment. Lord, we pray that the body would be built up, strengthened and encouraged, as we learn to live a countercultural life to our world. Lord, we are here to be salt and light, to bring glory to you. And so prepare our hearts and speak through me for that purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat if you would. Get your Bibles out. We uh, were able to get a better understanding, I hope, for all of us, of the purpose of the Old Testament. How the two Testaments are basically the same. In many ways, it's the same message. Love God and love others. And so we're going to be looking at, as I said last week, as we continue our series, Counterculture, Living a Righteous Life, this verse. Our Lord has been going through and sort of raising a standard for the behavior he expects of the citizens of his kingdom. And we get to this particular section of scripture, and this is what his word says. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, I will never forget the meeting. I and the rest of the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio, we were called to an emergency meeting, and I sat there stunned when I heard our campus director say these words with great impact, I might add. Butch committed adultery with Bridget. Butch was a staff member at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. At that time, that Campus Crusade ministry at Miami University was the largest in the country. There was over 1,000 students that would come to the the weekly meeting. Uh, A few months uh, before our emergency meeting uh, that day, Butch was the feature story and a photo of him was on the cover of Campus Crusade's monthly magazine called Worldwide Challenge. Four days before this shocking meeting, I was with Butch along with over 100 staff members at a conference for juniors and seniors called Life Options where they could, before they make their decisions about the rest of life, would they consider going into full-time ministry, particularly with Campus Crusade for Christ. At that conference, I remember Butch rollerblading across the stage during a funny skit. Everything seemed fine. However, when he arrived home after the conference, he was confronted by his wife with a phone bill 
And this was in the 90s. So we weren't texting back then. But with a phone bill that detailed numerous calls to Bridget, he later admitted to the affair. One of the saddest parts of the story is that Butch and his wife, Jossie, met Bridget while they were visiting BGSU. Now, they had served at BGSU for a while, then went on to Miami, Ohio. But coming back from a visit, they visited, they saw, met Bridget, they saw she was struggling, and just out of the kindness of their hearts, they began to minister to her. Bridget was emotionally needy. Butch was emotionally needy. This combination of two emotionally needy people triggered a set of events that eventually led to them committing adultery. Butch and Jossie eventually divorced after Butch refused to repent of his sin. I never heard from Bridget again. Around that same time, I was at the Bowling Green State University Student Rec Center when I stopped to check my email, yes, we had email back then. It had just come out uh, for about a year or two, and so it was the new thing. And I noticed that there was an email from the local church we were attending, Bowling Green Covenant Church. Since I rarely get emails from the church, I paid no attention to the email. I later found out that the email was an invitation to a congregational meeting in which it was announced that the senior pastor had committed adultery with a woman in town. There were two particularly disturbing points about the affair. Number one was the pastor had strong accountability with his elders. He was regularly asked personal questions about his life, including any sexual immorality. He was even asked if in any of his answers he had lied to them. Number two, the affair was discovered when the woman learned he was a pastor of a local church, and she contacted the elder board. As far as I know, the affair would have continued if not for the woman coming forward. She demonstrated more character than the pastor. He was fired from his job as senior pastor. The church was hurt and had to recover. And eventually opened, he opened a coffee shop in downtown Bowling Green. Not long after I'd arrived as the associate pastor at Kirtland Christian Fellowship, the senior pastor and I were faced counseling a couple trying to save their marriage from an affair the husband had with another woman. His wife was serving on the staff of another church as a women's ministry director. Her husband was helping to lead worship at the same church. He committed adultery with another woman on the worship team. I vividly remember sitting down to have lunch with this man who was feeling almost overwhelmed by the wounds and disgrace that follow an adulterous relationship. Their marriage survived the affair and they remained together as a couple as I speak. Now I could go on and cite more examples of adulterous relationships that I have encountered in my years of ministry. From the pastor of a large church in Archbold, Ohio, of the denomination I was a part of before I came to this church, who committed adultery, to a pastor of a small church in Middlefield, Ohio, who had an affair with his secretary because he claimed they fell in love. He used their love as an excuse to eventually divorce his wife and marry his secretary. 
he and his secretary were let go from their positions in the church. Last week, I opened the sermon with the story of the multiple affairs of Tiger Woods. This week, I thought I would open with stories of adulterous relationships I was personally familiar with. Here's the thing that struck me about the stories that I just shared with you. It took me about two minutes to recall them. I didn't have to put out a lot of effort to remember those stories. Sometimes as a pastor, when you're writing a sermon, you're trying to find a story or an example that would fit. This was easy. Remembering these. I had to put a whole lot of work into this introduction. The sin of adultery continues to plague the body of Christ. Perhaps because of our tendency to gratify the desires of our flesh, that Jesus addresses this issue of adultery in a sermon on the mount. Let's take a close look at this passage this morning. We're going to start with what I call the definition. I think you will be shocked at what he defines as adultery. It says, verse 27, you shall not, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. The root of the word adultery means a physical sexual relationship with the spouse of someone else. I think we would know that by now. But what you probably don't know, and what I had learned, is that most Bible scholars see it not only as a command not to engage in sexual activity with somebody else's spouse, but see it in a more general sense. Well, why? Well, because the word for adultery is also used in a general way in some other sources. For example, in some places in the Bible, the word means to seduce or violate a woman. Notice the overall general sense of that definition. It doesn't specify a married woman, does it? But just a woman. In other places in the Bible, it is translated to commit harlotry. The word harlotry has been used to speak of any kind of illicit or forbidden physical sexual relationship. Of course, anything is illicit outside of the bond of marriage, and so primarily it refers to a sexual relationship that violates a marriage. So when we look at the word adultery, we find that the spirit of it extends farther to include any kind of illicit sexual behavior. Now, if you look closely at Matthew 5, 27 to 30, I think that that's the general sense of the word indicated in what our Lord is saying to us here in verse 28. What does he say in verse 28? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, the woman he speaks of here is not defined as a married woman. And it's so broad in its scope that anybody who lusts after any woman has committed adultery in his heart. So the Lord is using the term in the broadest possible manner, I believe. Anybody and any woman. But what does the Old Testament say about adultery? Well, it considers this act a very serious sin. Leviticus 20.10 says this, if there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and adulteress shall surely be put to death. There would be a lot less people in the world if this was actually put into practice, wouldn't there? 
Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 and 24. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Both parties are considered guilty. Notice that the Bible doesn't speak of a victim mentality that much, does it? You, you commit this action, you're guilty. Despite your upbringing. Despite what's happened in your past. You're responsible, accountable for your actions. Proverbs 5 through 7 speaks to the devastation caused by the sin of adultery. It is a sin for fools, they say. Two verses in particular stood out to me as I was reading them this week. It was these verses right here. Proverbs 6, 32 and 33. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. Perhaps you're familiar with this. It's just recent, within the last few months. Carl Lentz was the former head of Hillsong's mega church in New York, the New York branch of Hillsong's church. Um, he was at one time the personal pastor and confidant of many celebrities. He was fired for having an affair with New York City-based designer Rain and Karim. She told the New York Post that she had a month-long relationship with the married pastor and father of three, which started during the summer of 2019. This has been all over the news. Here are some of the headlines that followed Carl Lentz since he committed the sin of adultery. Now again, look at this verse, particularly verse 33. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. Here are just three headlines. Look at the word in red. Disgraced Hillsong pastor Carl Lentz might get payoff despite multiple affairs. Disgraced Hillsong pastor seeks TV deal. Disgraced Hillsong pastor Carl Lentz spotted walking on beach at L.A. What does this verse say will happen to the man or the person who commits adultery? What will follow him? Disgrace. To this day, when I think of the three men and the women that I knew that were part of these adulterous relationships, those three stories I just shared, when I think of those three men, my thoughts eventually turn to the sin of adultery they committed. They have done other things in their lives, good things. But it's like thinking about David, King David in the Bible. What do you think of when you think of him? He's a man after God's own heart, but also he's committed adultery with Bathsheba. I just cannot help but also remember their failures. See, indeed, their reproach is not blotted out. But what does the New Testament say about adultery? Well, the New Testament affirms, obviously, what the Old Testament teaches. Adultery is condemned in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived, neither fornicators, and you would include adultery in fornication, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, because fornication is a form of sexual morality, in which is adultery is the same thing, nor effeminate, meaning men acting like women, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. In Revelation 22, it says the same thing. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and watch the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. There is no room in the kingdom of God for fornicators and adulterers, for the sexually immoral. Now, they are not in the kingdom of God because they're being judged. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So it's a very serious sin. And that's just the definition of adultery. Let's talk about the standard. Look at verse 28 again. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now once again, we find Jesus raising the standard. He says, You're not righteous before God if you ever thought a thought of adultery. Now being sexually Sexual beings, we're created that way because what's our purpose? One of our main purposes? To be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Okay? There's the desire to fulfill the command of God. But because of our sin nature, it's become perverted and corrupt. There's nobody in here, most likely, that has ever not had a thought of adultery. Therefore, you are guilty. So he's raising the standard here. But he's saying you cannot be content with just avoiding the sinful action while ignoring the perversion in your heart. Let's look at the standards of his kingdom in this verse. He says that everyone who looks, you see that? That everyone who looks, that's a present participle in the grammar, which indicates a continuous action. So the idea isn't an inadvertent, accidental glance. It is a purposeful Repeated, lustful looking. The idea is that what may have begun as a glance becomes a gaze. I've always remembered what Martin Luther said about this verse. It's not my fault if a bird lands on my head. It is my fault if I allow that bird to build a nest on my head. Now, don't miss this about this verse. He says that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her, what follows is not commits adultery. Do you see that? Instead, he says that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, why? Why does he say that? Because it's the adulterous heart that results in the deliberate look. See, the sin has already happened in the heart. And that is what prompts the look. In fact, you can read this verse this way. Emphatically, I say to you that whoever continues looking on a woman 
for the purpose of lusting gives evidence of already committing adultery in the heart. The continued look is the manifestation of a corrupt, perverted heart. And Jesus is saying not only does a person who commits the physical act of adultery deserve execution, right? The Old Testament says. Well, so does a person who even had the thought to commit adultery deserve execution. Now that's a standard. Our Lord's teachings on this issue are consistent with the testimony of Scripture. Now perhaps the best known story of adultery in the Bible is what story? King David and Bathsheba. I want you to just listen. Actually, just turn there to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. And what I, I'll give you some time to get there. What I want you to pay attention to is the pattern of sin that you'll see. And the Bible is clear in this throughout the Old and New Testament. 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 5. It says, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon, Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David rose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. There's a lot to unfold here. We don't have time to go into it. Let me say a couple of things. David didn't just have one wife or two wives or three wives. He had a number of wives. He clearly had a, a healthy sexual appetite or sex drive. Okay? I think that that was somewhat of his reputation. Because notice what the servant said, because the servant was probably aware of this of David's sexual appetite. Who is that, and what does the servant say? Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife, see that, of Uriah the Hittite? Now David apparently can't sleep, so he goes outside for some fresh air. While on the rooftop, he what? Watch this, what did he do? He saw Bathsheba bathing. It's probably late at night, it's hot, you would go out and, and, and bathe, no one else was around, and she probably felt comfortable doing that. I don't think it was intentional to entice anybody, but David can't sleep, he goes outside, and he first thing is he saw her bathing. Now, seeing her bathing is not sin, but the glance turns into a gaze. Verse 3 tells us that that basically that's what happened because he inquired about the woman. So no doubt at this point in time, before he's even touched her, what sin has David committed? Lust and adultery in his heart. Mm -hmm. So the glance activates the corrupt heart, which leads to a lustful gaze, 
which results in the actual physical act of adultery. The sin of adultery resulted in two deaths, by the way. The innocent child that was conceived that night, and eventually Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was murdered by David. Now I want you to pay attention to this. Just listen to this. James lays out the same pattern in his uh, letter in the New Testament. It says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. What's the ultimate result or the end result of when you are sinning and you are lusting? It will conventionally lead to what? Death, and that's exactly what happened in this story. Two people died. Peter says that adultery begins with a look from our eyes, 2 Peter 2.14. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. In fact, this is a pattern for all sin. Do you guys remember the story of Achan from the Old Testament? If you don't, that's okay, but he disobeyed the Lord and took some of the spoils of war for himself. They were not supposed to bring, take anything, complete and utter destruction. His sin was found out, and here is what he said. This is in Joshua chapter 7, verses 20 and 21. Again, notice the pattern. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. What's the, the, the progression? Saw with eyes, coveted in the heart, stole with the hands, then he hid him because he knew it was wrong. And I think Job understood this pattern because he says this in Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Because he understood it began with the look. It begins with the look. Well, thankfully our Lord provides a solution. Maybe one of the most misunderstood passages in Scripture. If your right eye makes you stumble, Matthew 5, 29 to 30, you can go back there if you want. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, there are some who have an accurate interpretation of these verses. You know, you're better off to pluck out your eye or cut off your arm if it leads you to sin, right? But however, they have an inaccurate application of these verses. It is said that the early church father Origen took this command literally, and he had himself castrated. Clearly, that is not what Jesus is calling for. Let me ask you this. Can a one-eyed man still lust and commit adultery in his heart? Can a one-handed man or woman still lust and commit adultery in the heart? Yes, they can. Here's the thing. The trouble with a literal interpretation is that it doesn't go far enough. You see that? There isn't a physical remedy for a heart problem. Paul spoke to this principle 
in his warning to the saints at, at Colossae against men who were saying self-abasement, self-harm, self-denial was a way to achieve holiness. Colossians 2.23 says, These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but listen to this, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. When Jesus says, your eye, he indicates the problem is not that you live in a sex-created society. Don't blame the world you live in. You're not a victim. You make a choice. You have a choice over what your eyes can look at or not look at. D.L. Moody, certainly one of the more godly men of the modern era, wisely recognized the source of the problem, admitting that, and this is a direct quote from him, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any man I know. The man I see in the mirror each morning is my greatest impediment to holiness and godliness. And I could say, same thing for you women as well. Now I want you to notice that Jesus says, if your right eye makes you stumble, the word for stumble was uh, the Greek word skandilizo, it refers to a stick in a trap on which the bait is placed, in which springs up and shuts the trap at the touch of a careless, kind of innocent little animal. Now Jesus' obvious point is that anything or anyone that morally traps us and causes us to fall into sin should be eliminated. That's a common sense interpretation. Okay? But the use of hyperbole, like plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand, it implies a radical and swift removal of the stumbling block. But there is more. To a Jew, did you know this? The right eye, the right arm, and the right leg were symbols of the best faculty that a man had. The right was always symbolic of the better of the two. Sorry if you're left-handed. And so Jesus is simply saying, there's nothing too precious to eliminate from your life if it's going to cause your heart to indulge in adulterous desires. But what is most precious to you? Does it cause you to stumble? For Abraham, it was his son Isaac. There was nothing more precious to him on earth than the long-awaited promised son. But when God asks Abraham to offer his son on the altar as a sacrifice to him, what does Abraham do? He doesn't hesitate to offer to God what was most precious to him. But there are those of us who are simply unwilling to give up what is most precious in order to avoid sin. And I'd like to suggest to you, if that is you this morning, that you are on the path to becoming like, of all people, Gollum. Gollum? Some of you may know, I was hoping Ron would be here, I know he'd pick up on this. Gollum is a fictional character in J.R.R. Tolkien's books, what? The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And as the story goes, Gollum was for his first name Smeagol. And he was renamed Gollum after the sound of his disgusting, gurgling, choking cough. And he was with his cousin Deagle, and they were fishing. They were celebrating his birthday, 
at his Smeagol's birthday when his cousin was pulled into the water by a fish. And while in the water, Deagle discovers the one true ring forged by the dark Lord Sauron, a ring that was meant to be worn by the one who would rule all of Middle-earth. And almost immediately, Smeagol fell into the power of the ring, and he murders his cousin by choking him to death in order to possess the ring. And over time, Smeagol loves the ring so much, what does he call it? My precious. His love of the ring blinds him to the transformation that's taking place right before his very eyes. He becomes so deformed and twisted in both body and mind by the corruption of the ring, they no longer recognize his given name, Smeagol, and answers now to the name Gollum. His chief desire was to possess the very ring that enslaved him. This is what can happen to the one who's not willing to eliminate even that which is most precious to him in order to avoid sin. Now throughout history there have been men who wish to free themselves, and women, but particularly we have stories of men, from the problem of lust. They want to be free of it. And so the most famous man to do that was a, a man named St. Anthony. Have you ever heard of him or know this story? Anybody? This is what he did. He decided he'd go out to the desert in Egypt to get rid of the feelings of lust in his heart. He lived like a hermit. He fasted. He prayed. He often went without sleep. For 35 years, St. Anthony lived in the desert and had a nonstop battle with temptation. And this is what he wrote in his biography. He says, first of all, the devil tried to lead me away from the discipline, whispering to him to the remembrance of wealth, cares for a sister, claims of kindred, love of money, love of glory, various pleasures of, of the, the table, meaning food, other relaxations of life. And last of all, Satan tempted me in the area of virtue. In the battle, Satan would tempt him with foul thoughts that would, he would counter with prayer. Satan would tempt him with lust. He would counter with more prayers and faith and fasting. So the devil one night took, him, took on him the shape of a woman. And the devil imitated all the acts that a woman could do to beguile St. Anthony. This was this man's experience for 35 years. Well, he tried, and guess what? Did he purge those feelings of lust from his heart? No. The point is, Jesus is giving us an impossible standard. And when we fail at that standard, we are to realize that we can't meet that standard, and we need help. And God is there offering help through his son, Jesus Christ. I'll meet that standard for you. And you will be righteous and holy before me through your faith in the death and resurrection of my son. You must simply believe. And when you fail, because you'll fail as a believer, what can you do? Well, Jesus already told us. What? Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn for what? Their sin. They shall be 
You guys got to know this. What is it? Bless those who mourn, they shall be comforted. You'll find comfort for your sin. You confess it and you move on. These, this sermon is leading you to him. To trust in him, to depend upon him. And to cry out for his mercy which he freely gives. And so I want to ask you this question. This is the uh, application point here. What is most precious to you that you must give up in order to avoid sin? Achan didn't lust for any woman. He lusted for possessions. That was most precious to him. And it cost him. So what is most precious to you that you must give up in order to avoid sin? Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we close this time with another song. I thank you for this, your words and how they're very, very, very clear. They're challenging, they're direct, they're convicting, and yet in them we find life. Lord, I thank you that you met that standard for us. That when we come to you in total surrender and dependence, we find life, we find comfort, we find the desire and the strength to continue to pursue you and to obey you and to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need a new heart Transform us, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's close with the song. Please.